at Dell, I worked for, I worked for Amanda and she has continued to be a good friend and a mentor and a colleague throughout the years. And she really molded my view of open source and what that really means. And it's not about selling and it's not about marketing. It's all about just being present and being helpful and engaging with the community on anything they want. And so she was a good leader to have in my first job in open source. show today is Kim McMahon. Kim is the Director of Visibility and Community Engagement at RISC-V International. RISC-V International is a nonprofit consortium chartered to standardize, protect, and promote the free and open RISC-V instruction set architecture and ecosystem. And Kim is also the co-chair of the Open Hardware Diversity Alliance, which we will be talking about later in this episode. Kim, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Looking forward to this. So for full openness for everyone listening to this episode, this is actually the second time that Kim and I have done this interview. Uh, we spoke a few months ago. Uh, however, as we all know, computers are fun, complicated things, and it turned out that there was a bit of an audio snafu. Um, but it was a great conversation, so I asked Kim if she would be gracious enough to take the time to sit down and have another conversation. And because Kim is an awesome person, she said yes. So here we are. We're going to do it again. So if in this conversation you hear us refer to the last time we spoke, that's what it's about. Um, I've done production long enough to know that if you refer to a prior conversation, people will think that, oh, there's, a, there's another episode I can go listen to. And then I'll get an email going, well, what's the other episode that you did with her so I can go listen to that one too? So just so everybody's on board, that is what we will be referring to. So Kim, I wanted to start out and kind of get an understanding of what it is that you do at RISC-V, um, what your involvement is. Your title, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, Director of Visibility and Community Engagement, correct? Correct. Okay, so let's, let's tease that apart just a little bit. Um, Director of Visibility is a title that I haven't really heard before, but I'm assuming that that's kind of a marketing PR Thing, correct? It is. It is. And yeah, you're, you're quite astute. And we did, uh, we changed the title to include visibility as opposed to marketing because open source and tech people, they don't want to be marketed to. And frankly, I don't want to market to anybody. It's all about making our accomplishments and the work we do visible so that people know if if they want to contribute and then how they can, for example. Okay, so the second half of your title is community engagement. So what types of things are you involved in on the community side? So, well, in any open source project or any company that is working in open source, we have to have the community engaged. I mean, that's kind of the reason we do that. The more people that contribute to a project, the more innovations that happen, the more, more advancements in that technology. So in the community engagement side, it, it's, it's what it is. It's about engaging the community. And we do that through our alliances. We do that through helping our, our people in the RISC-V community contribute to RISC-V. And we combine these two roles together because they are very similar. They feed off each other. And so I'm trying to reach out to developers and get them engaged. But I have I do that through a lot of the visibility efforts through the 
well, we won't say marketing anymore, but through the visibility efforts. Yeah, marketing is kind of a loaded term these days. So it was probably a good idea to, to rephrase that. Mm-hmm. On the community side of things, I want to kind of put a pin in that for right now, because I think we can, we're definitely going to come back to that because I want to dig into that. And I think that's going to tie more into what you're doing now with the Diversity Alliance. But before we get into that, I wanted to dig a little bit into your history and your career so that people kind of have an understanding and a perspective on what you've done so far so they understand what you're bringing to the table when you're working with the community. Does that sound good? Sounds great. <laughs> so when I was looking at your your kind of resume that you have on LinkedIn, and I'm looking at your career, it stood out to me that, wow, this this woman has had a pretty remarkable career. I mean, SGI, Cray, NetApp, Brocade, Dell, the Linux Foundation, now Risk Five International. That's a substantial list of heavy hitters in the industry. And I think most people would be happy to have one or two of those on their resume. You decided to just go for the Royal Flush and get all of them. <laughs> Do you ever stop and think like, wow, I've worked at a lot of really cool places? I'd say no, not until you have told me this. Um, but I, they were all, they all are really cool places that I've gotten to work. And uh, I'm very honored and I guess humbled by the fact that I have been part of all of these organizations and their history. I mean, think about Silicon Graphics, you know, in the 90s and 2000s. I, Somebody actually shared a picture of uh, they were watching um, that Tom Cruise movie, uh, Show Me the Money. Oh, my gosh, totally forgot the name. But there's a Silicon Graphics machine behind him. So it's really that was that was probably the most fun time to be in tech and the most fun job I had. So I guess the obvious question is, having worked at so many companies like that, what actually what was your role in those companies? Were you more on the technical side? Were you more on the business side? Business side? Were you more on human resources side? Like, which aspect did you work when you worked at those companies? I have always been on the marketing and sales business development side. And one of the reasons that I've been so successful in all of those roles is I can have that conversation with the engineers. I can continue to ask those questions as long as I, as many as I need to, to understand this technology or, or why are we doing this? And then what I do is I bring that back and attach that to how is this going to help somebody I'm selling it to? How is it going to help the community? What is the benefit of, of this product or this feature, et cetera? So at Silicon Graphics, uh, the first time, actually is there twice, but the first time it was sales. It was all sales. It was super fun. At Cray, it was leading business units, their high-performance computing business unit, as well as their storage business unit. And then SGI, again, was uh, the second time around was leading professional service, so services. So that is what products are we going to have, budgeting, I mean, just leading those entire business units. So most of it comes back to visibility. That's been the primary, uh, primary similarity, I guess, to let, for lack of a better word, across all of those positions. Okay. So how did you actually end up at SGI? Because that's a type of company that when I think about, I think somebody just doesn't stumble into the offices at SGI. Like there has to be some story to getting there. There is a story to getting there. And um, I, I spent 
many, many years. Uh, well, not many, 16 at, at Texaco, the oil company. I got out of college with a degree in accounting and I went to work for the accounting department at Texaco. It, that kind of morphed into finance and being uh, assistant treasurer and then morphed into business development where, you know, selling refineries and negotiating pipeline servicing agreements. But at some point, they wanted me to to move to Houston, Texas, and nothing against Houston, Texas. The food is good. The people are great, but it's not very different from what a Colorado girl wants, where they want to live. And it was it was too much of a change for me. I had a friend at the time who worked for SGI and said, Kim, would you come and work with us? I want you to sell SGI solutions to the oil and gas industry. John, I know nothing about selling, I know nothing about technology. He says, you don't have to. You just have to know about what the oil and gas industry, what they need. And then we will, you'll have like a, your SE person with you helping them identify the product. And that's, that's how I got into tech. And it's been a great ride ever since. So thank you, Texaco. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you say was the first time where you became aware of open source and kind of the philosophies that surround open source? That would be when I started working for Dell. The leader of the working group at Dell, the co-team at Dell, which was the open source team that moved over from EMC, I had worked with that individual uh, as a contractor when that individual was at a high-performance computing company. And... They, they asked me, said, you want to come join us and help us out with our marketing? And at the time, I had my own business, and I was like, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll work with Dell and the code team. And it's another one of those things, like high-performance computing, open source. You just fall in love with it, and you just never want to leave it. So doing the open source work and working with that incredible code team at Dell um, that's kind of where I got my first open source bite. You mentioned the the people, the incredible people at Dell. Are there people that you could call to memory that specifically helped mold your views around open source? Yes. Uh, at Dell, I worked for, I worked for Amanda and she has continued to be a good friend and a mentor and a colleague throughout the years. And she really molded my view of open source and what that really means. And it's not about selling and it's not about marketing. It's all about just being present and being helpful and engaging with the community on anything they want. And so she was a good leader to have in my first job in open source. So a lot of people that I talk to that work in open source, they sometimes refer to their aha moment. Uh, sometimes it was, you know, an individual moment. Sometimes it was a collection of moments where it kind of, everything clicked together and they realized, oh, wow, this open source thing like opens up so many possibilities. Did you have one moment or were there a collection of moments where you kind of had that sudden realization? I, I, yeah, I think it was when I was with CNCF, when I went to Cloud Native Computing Foundation, when the ecosystem just really expanded. And I went to CNCF when, oh, there was like a, a handful of projects or maybe two handful of projects. And you know, what are you going to do to enhance, you know, Kubernetes being the first project? What are you going to do to support the other things you need around Kubernetes? And just watching this ecosystem build and expand and watching what Chris and Dan did to make this a cloud native open source ecosystem. That was really my aha moment because so many people are contributing to all those projects. 
And companies are taking that open source back and putting it into products that they are then selling. And this whole give and take, it, it's amazing. Yeah, it's one of the things that I, I love most about open source is the collaborative nature of mm -hmm. people working together. And I often comment that I think it's funny in today's modern high-tech world that we actually have to tell people that that's a good thing because that's like that's basically how modern science works. It's people taking what others have done, standing on their shoulders, building the next thing, discovering the next thing, and then allowing the people that follow to then stand on their shoulders and take things to the next level. Yeah, but I do think that some open source ecosystems are maybe not as far advanced as, as CNCF, as cloud native, where they, they have those processes inside the organization where they build something and they build on it and then they create something and they build on it, but they haven't quite felt comfortable that contributing to open source and taking it and building on it and contributing to open source is, is the right thing. You know, am I giving, am I giving stuff away to competitors? And there's always that process of educating new organizations who are, who are maybe doing open source. I actually had um, a company that I was working with when I was at CNCF and they, they reached out and said, hey, I got some questions. You know, can I talk to you about our marketing? We open sourced our project, but nobody's contributing to it. And I'm like, well, it, first, good, good, good step in open sourcing your project, but now you got to build that community around there and help people understand what, how it's going to help them to contribute to this project. So I, there's always going to be that learning out there in the market, you know, learning about open source. Yeah, I think for those of us that have kind of, I don't, I don't know if saying grown up in open source make, is the right way to say it, but for us, it's just common sense that yes, when you open source something, there has to be a community along that goes along with it. And there has to be that symbiotic relationship. Is that something that you feel that as a larger open source community, we need to focus on maybe explaining a little bit better uh, uh, on top of just what we normally say of, oh, well, look, you can just do whatever you want with the code. <laughs> yes. In one word, yes. It, it is surprising to me, the organizations who, who put themselves forward as open source and they just are, they don't play nicely. So yeah, helping people understand it and helping them feel comfortable with this process. I think that's an ongoing learning that we all have. You know, I have um, working with the Linux Foundation, I've collaborated with other people in the organization, you know, on why open source and how it benefits you and how you can benefit, well, benefit from that, it, the same thing. But it's, I, there's always that opportunity that where there's going to be somebody who just hasn't gotten it yet. So do you think that this is something that over time will just become a, something that's understood in business? Because if I look back to the way business used to run, say 20, 30 years ago, I don't see as much that businesses were kind of fostering communities. They were making a product, they were selling a product to people, they kind of wanted that to continue. And that was pretty much it. There wasn't that back and forth that nowadays we're starting to, to see more and more. Do you think that over time, that's just going to become the standard? Yeah, that's interesting. The way, you know, the kind of the way you worded that, uh, I, I think social media has changed that for companies. You know, the, you can, there's a community around tacos from Taco Bell, you know, and that has nothing to do with open source. And, and I think with, with all the social tools out there, 
companies have realized that you can build a community and get that following of lover of people who love your product, you know, evangelizing for you. And that's why you build a community. It's to have people evangelizing and selling for you. You know, you support them and, you know, that's what you're getting in return. You know, I wish it would become the standard. I, I don't think it will. Uh, I, I do think there will always be companies that are closed. You know, that's just their nature. That's just their DNA. So as we've come back to the community topic, um, I wanted to dig into a little with the community work that you do with Risk Five. Um, you had mentioned when we kind of touched on it earlier about how you work with uh, people who are maybe interested in getting involved and what they can contribute. So what are the typical things when someone is curious about if they can get involved with Risk Five that comes up and you can then say to them of, hey, these are the areas where you can contribute to the project? Yeah, with Risk Five, it's we have the base ISA, you know, 40 something instructions in that and multiple extensions and multiple SIGs, data center, AIML, H high performance computing, for example. So that is that's and there's so many it's you look at that and your eyes just kind of blur so that is the top question i get is i want to contribute to the technology i don't know where to get started so we have uh two team members on our technical team that i bring into calls with me and we talk about what is it that you're doing with your product okay great this this is a great work group or sig for you to contribute back to that's probably the top question. And then I get a handful of people who tell me they want to contribute to the visibility to the marketing committees. Yeah. I wish it was more <laughs> working on it. So when you are engaging with people in the community, are you mostly working with individuals who are considering being able to get involved and contribute? Or is it more industry partners that are looking at risk five more from an aspect of how can we take advantage of the community and what you guys provide and how can we give back? Yeah. And I, I don't call them industry partners. I call them members. Okay. <laughs> and yeah. Um, I work, I work with a lot of members. We, you know, we talk with our very high tier members. We try to do that quarterly. We try to talk to our, our mid tier members, you know, frequently. I have a lot of calls with our members when they come on board, uh, we welcome them and, and kind of show them how to navigate through how do you how to contribute? Uh, so I end up working with individuals in organizations or a couple individuals in organizations. Um, it's somebody has been signed the task of risk five in their organization and hopefully given given time during their day job to contribute back. And so we want to help them find where where their passion is, where their company's interest is, where they can contribute back to open source. Okay. One of the things, and we touched on this earlier, that's grown out of your community work at Risk Five is the Open Hardware Diversity Alliance. Mm -hmm. So, yes. tell me a little bit about that. So, the Open Hardware Diversity Alliance is a, a partnership between. We, we had a couple founding members. We had Open Power Foundation, which is a Linux Foundation project, Chips Alliance, and then Western Digital, who is a member of both Chips Alliance and Risk Five. So, it was the these four organizations that came together to form this alliance. It came out, it, the idea was conceived from a gap that specifically the Western digital people were seeing in their work with the, within CHIPS Alliance. And that is finding enough people to contribute. 
you know, and finding this diverse audience. You know, when you when you aren't taking full advantage of 50 percent of the population, you know, it's it's a big deal. So it was really founded out of that. How how can we help women and underrepresented individuals stay in stay in open hardware and contribute do you know as education tools is it career development tools um, do they want to be a speaker at events and raise their whole profile so we we looked at a, a bunch of different areas that we can focus on and we came together with the alliance and are looking to be offering these services out to the community in early 2022 okay now anytime that i i you know hear people talking about this i have this discussion with individuals it always seems that the focus, at least in the conversation that I have, has been on increasing the numbers of women and you know people from diverse backgrounds in tech. And I look at that and I go, is, are we not trying right now to treat the symptom without understanding the root cause? Because I kind of feel like there has to be a reason why this disparity has occurred. And in order to properly address it, we would have to kind of understand that and then be able to figure out the best way to approach that. Because I look at it and I go, I know some people will say, well, you know, maybe women just don't feel that they can do it. Personally, I kind of have a disagreement with that because I can look at history and go, well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, mm -hmm. have you ever heard of Marie Curie? <laughs> um, have you ever heard of the women at NASA who actually hand wove the core memory for the Apollo systems, um, who did small talk at Xerox, mm -hmm. um, Grace Hopper? I mean, you want to talk about a legend. Like, there you go. So no one should be sitting around going, oh, well, clearly women can't do science and tech because clearly they can. And just not even looking back to people from the past, but looking at, at you know, young women now, I'm thinking of um, Lemur Freed, um, Aya Badir. And if I can be so bold, Kim, you kind of fit that description yourself of women who have been able to be successful and excel in the industry. So I can't help but disagree when people say, well, there's this attitude that women can't do it because clearly there's tons of examples of women that can. So where's where's the disconnect here? Yeah, well, I agree with you. I, it, when somebody says women can't do that, it's like, I don't even know if I want to take my time to even talk to you anymore if you say that to me because you're so misguided. Now, I'm not an expert in this field. Like I'm not a, a social scientist. I've not studied the causes. We believe that some of it is stemming back to students and in in uh, the high school and the university ages where they're just not, you know, the women are not going to those courses. They're not enrolling in those courses. So, and, and so that's actually an educated guess that we have. It's, you know, it wasn't totally pulled out of the air. We, you know, there is some studies that say that. So we're focusing on student programs but we're also focusing on programs that can help women who are in their career and are just looking for those resources and help, um, that mentor or that ally or whatever to help them with their career. But yes, I had a conversation with, um, with Sci-Fi, and one of the things we really want to do is take a bunch of uh, their Doctor Who boards and do an event with kids. Hey, let's go make the lights blink. I mean, and really get younger people excited about technology. And in that case, you know, I'm, I'm not looking to target just women or men. I want to get everybody excited about this technology. So I guess my question is, 
if we're let's focus on the education bit for a little bit. Where do you think there would be the greatest gains to be realized? Is it in kind of the primary and secondary education or in post-secondary education? I think it's younger. I think, you know, it, it, it junior high into high school kind of because that's that's when we're all be forming who we are and, and what kind of courses we're going to take. And, uh, you know, if you're never exposed, you know, I was lucky. I was exposed to a lot of different things. You know, grew up in, in a little suburban neighborhood in Denver. And but if you, you know, exposing kids to technology is going to open up another interest that they may have. Right. And there's a lot of kids that just never will get that exposure in the school setting. So how can we do it as an industry to basically start building that pipeline of future employees? So that reminds me of uh, two projects that two of my friends have worked on in the past. One is uh, Rusuli. She's with Red Hat and Red Hat did a program called CoLab where they went around to different cities and did uh, Raspberry Pi things, raspberry tie work with middle school girls. I think it was middle. There might have been some high school involved in there as well. But basically, they took these raspberry pies and they taught the girls how to. Some of them made small cameras. Another year, they did like an electronic book where each page would do something different. And my other friend, Melanie Shimano, she's a lecturer with John Hopkins. And she ran the food computer program in Baltimore, which I believe that was with high school students. And they would take raspberry pies and sensors and they would basically make a small little greenhouse that was monitored by the Raspberry Pis to actually grow food. So, and they did this over over the semester and the year. So then at the end of it, they actually had food that then they actually took and actually then made food for, I think it was uh, people in the community, but they actually, they took a little restaurant. Melanie is fantastic to talk to. And in talking with with both Ruth and Melanie, they they both expressed that when a lot of the young girls come into the program, they kind of have the attitude of, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this. Oh, I don't want to do this. This is just, this is just, yeah, this is not me. And then by the end, they're absolutely in love with it. And they're amazed at what they did. And I remember Melanie telling me one time that one of her students, she was so proud that she's like, I can't wait to go home and tell my dad about this oh. because like, I didn't think I could do this, but then I did. Oh, that is so cool. Those are really cool programs. Yeah. So Oh my gosh, I love that. Yeah, I wanna I wanna meet your friends. <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely put you in touch with them. Yeah. Um, so yeah. how do you think we as a larger industry can kind of help promote programs like that and create and foster more of them? I know that's a big question. And I know I know yeah. I'm asking you to solve all the world's problems right now. <laughs> but... <laughs> well, you know, there's so many people like what Melanie, what Melanie and Ruth are doing. There are so many people doing that all all across the tech industry, just doing any little program. And, um, you know, we all don't have to be one big connected unit to do this. You know, we just all, if your company is passionate about, or your company may thinks that they may want future employees, then you should have a program to teach, teach the younger generation, your technology. Yeah. And they're going to, they're going to learn to love tech and they may come work for you. They may not, but you know, companies need to take that on. And, and, you know, and I say that with a huge pause because I'm sure many companies do. I, I just, I've never really looked at it, but I'm sure they do. We're trying to do that with RISC-5. We have our development board program, uh, which any individual can apply to get a developer board and, you know, work on RISC-5 projects. And so there's a lot of students, university students mostly, who have applied for those boards and are working with the technology. So making 
And this was uh, a brainchild of our CTO, Mark, uh, this and great uh, suggestion and idea because he's making hardware available for people to fall in love with RISC-V. Yeah, on the hardware front, especially on a new platform, you always have the fun chicken or egg problem where you have to have enough of the hardware out there for people to develop and do things with it. So then other people see that and go, oh, I need to get that board because I want to do that thing as well. I, I spoke with Mark previously and yeah, when he, when he told me about the program that they were trying to seed as many boards as they could out, I was like, that's, that's a really cool program. Um, and I hope, I hope there's a lot of positive outcome from that. Yeah. Well, there, there has been, we have a lot of boards out there. Um, I haven't caught up with them recently on what kind of development we had come out of that, but I think it's time for that call. See how it's going. <laughs> yeah. You'll have to let me know how that call goes. <laughs> I will. I will. So in your in your response, you mentioned about how you're sure that there are companies that are doing programs and, and projects like this. Is that potentially part of the problem is that this is happening, but we just don't know it and there isn't a way for all of these disparate projects to be able to kind of do that open source thing, share ideas and explain, hey, this worked great for us. This might work well for you. And, oh, we, we tried this, but we found out that eh, it didn't work so well, but th we found this that worked better. Is this maybe a... a communication issue of people just not being able to express what they found is beneficial? Sounds like it might be a consulting business <laughs> idea. <laughs> Actually, frankly, I mean, yeah, you're collecting all the best practices and launching this kind of program <laughs> in, in your organization. You know, I, I, I know that I talk to, I, I talk to a lot of other organizations, you know, what are you doing? How can we collaborate? Yeah. But, you know, I, I only have so many hours in a day to talk to people. So, but, and I'm sure, I'm sure companies, organizations are the same way, but I don't know, maybe there is a consulting business in here. Maybe that'll be my second career when I'm done with Risk 5. Well, I mean, you, you have a consulting business already. Didn't you mention that before? I did. Yeah, I did. I had a consulting business for okay. about 10 years. So yeah. Chapter two, I guess we'll say. Ch chapter two, chapter two. And I, yeah, at some point in my future, I do see a chapter two consulting business coming up. Not yet. I'm not ready yet, but yeah, you know, in the, the next five years, there's still good work to be done at risk five. Yeah, there is. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm curious as to what advice you would give for people wanting to get into tech, because when I, when I speak with people who have worked in the field for a while, one of the things that I love to inquire about is kind of all the tangential things that they've kind of picked up and learned over the career. Not so much like the day-to-day -day things of like, you know, keep a schedule and follow up with your contacts, not that stuff, but sort of the, the meta items that we come to learn over time. Uh, for instance, I was speaking with a friend of mine a couple months ago, and he mentioned that it took him a while to learn that he actually needed to lean into his like personal strengths instead of just trying to, to fit like a, a mold that he thought he should be, that if he had an advantage just by the way his brain works and the way that he works, that he should lean into that and he said that once he actually kind of accepted that, that, hey, I've got these, you know, individual strengths that I can lean into, he was able to progress so much further and do more and accomplish more than what he had been before. And he mentioned that he's like, it's, it's kind of silly. It took me a decade to learn this. So I'm curious if there are things that, you know, you would say that you've picked up over your career that you would then pass along to others of, you know, hey, this is something to keep in mind. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it, it only took him a decade. Um, that's actually really great. Uh, I think it's taken my entire career. Uh, and well, I would say probably for the last 10, 15 years, I've been in, in roles that I love, but it's, 
It's knowing what you're good at, knowing what you like to do, knowing where you're successful and the skills it takes and where those intersect. And yeah, I have a good idea what I'm good at. And, and I've done that by analyzing my successes and things, things in my jobs or even volunteer activities that I, I like to do. Uh, and how does that translate back to what is a strength of mine? So how about this? You don't know this about me. I taught skiing for a long time. Okay. I taught sit skiing for the National Sports Center for the Disabled at Winter Park. And oh my gosh, I love that. And I started thinking about, and I also coached soccer for a long time. And I thought about why am I good at this? Well, I was really good at seeing the big picture, but breaking it down to specific tasks. And I loved helping people get that aha moment. And you know what? That's kind of what marketing is. You got this big old plan that looks really scary, but you, when you break it down in the tasks, you know, it really helps people get that aha moment. I get why we're doing this. So, Okay. So the next two questions are kind of opposites of each other. And that is in the open source community, I'm curious, what are the things that stand out to you that you see being developed and worked on that gets you most excited and encouraged for the future? The collaboration, definitely the, the collaboration. And uh, I just got back from KubeCon here a couple of weeks ago uh, where <laughs> I got to be on the keynote stage. It was so fun. And, you know, that community is so connected. I, you, company borders are broken down and friendships last forever and people are collaborating. And that's, that is really the jewel of open source. Okay. The flip side of that question then is what is something that you see that the open source community maybe isn't focusing on or something that we're not doing a real good job of and we need to do a better job of? I think obviously the, the first thing that would come to mind that I think you would answer would be uh, the diversity aspect, hence the yeah. open diversity. Do you want lines. me to go there? Well, you can <laughs> yeah, go there, but I'm curious if there's, if there's other, other things that pop into mind as well. Well, I do see, you know, so some of the things where maybe the open source community can improve, I, I do see little pockets, um, you know, because you have a couple different open source foundations and I'll see little pockets within those foundations that don't want to work across, across, you know, with the other, with the other foundation. And, and I kind of just, I scratch my head when I think of that, because we're both trying to, you know, you know, you know, when it comes down from the simple place where I'm sitting, we're both trying to, to drive the technology forward. I'm sure up at a higher executive level, it I, I suppose they have a whole different set of worries. But that kind of cross-collaboration is, you know, it's, it's a thing that we're really good at, but it's also a thing that we continue to work on. And, um, you know, diversity. Uh, you know, we, we are just not taking full advantage of the workforce. And, and there's some organizations, some, uh, well, some technologies that are doing better that are a little ahead of where hardware is. Software tends to be a little further ahead than where hardware is. But I'm also trying to model after what Dan and Chris had done with CNCF, trying to model that at RISC-V and see if we, we can really get more people, you know, entering the community, more diverse, more diverse thought, more diverse individuals, you know, just making a better product with that happening. So for anyone listening that's considering a career in technology and they're not sure if they fit in because, you know, they watch TV and movies and they see the, the caricature of this typical tech person, they think, well, I'm definitely not like that. And they see you at a conference because 
I'm glad to hear we're actually starting to have those again in person. That's wonderful. <laughs> um, if if someone came up to you and you know kind of asked the question of you know how how can I know that this is right for me? What would you what would you tell them? Well, I I'd want to ask them. Yeah, what do you like? What are you doing? Um, and more importantly, why why would you think it's not right for you? You know what what's holding you back from thinking that this is right for you? Uh, and I have yeah you know, I love meeting people at conferences and. Yeah. No, I am not handing people off to other people, but my, you know, I meet, I have a lot of a big sense of network and I'll be talking to somebody. I'll say, Hey, by the way, you need to go meet, you know, let's go introduce you to this person. Let's expand your network. So you, you just have to ask yourself, you know, coming back to the original question, ask yourself, why, why do you think you can't do it? You know, and I'll be happy to explore that with you. And give you a million, million ways to sundown telling you how, why that's not correct. But I also, that being said, you know, I think we all have that. You know, I, I even still have that sometimes. Oh, I can't do that. You know, and, and I sit down, sit myself down and say, what are you talking about? But, you know, it's, it, I think it's a natural human reaction. One of the things that I love most about open source is that, well, you don't need anybody's permission to do it. You can just do it on your own. I mean, I, as a software guy, there's been times when, you know, I've written some code that I've used and I've just put it up on GitHub because quite honestly, I want to back up in case my hard drive goes bad and I can pull it back down and use it again. <laughs> but, you know, a year will go by and then I'll get a message from somebody going, hey, man, I really appreciate you th that you did that. And I'll be like, wait, what did what? And then they'll tell me and I'll be like, that was useful. Well, that's great. I had no idea that was going to be useful. And just the fact that, you know, if you want to, you can do get involved. You don't there's there aren't gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. Don't be your own gatekeeper. If if you're interested, if you're excited about it, if you're interested in it, go for it. Oh, I love that. Don't be your own gatekeeper. <laughs> and don't you feel great when that person said, "Hey, I love your code." It, it it just it's like, oh my god, it makes it worth your time, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kim, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me again and have this conversation. <laughs> um, once again, it's been lovely talking to you. I've really appreciated it. Yeah, I always enjoy talking with you. So thank you so much.